I'm going to go easy on you all this morning and ask you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Genesis. To Genesis, not to Hezekiah or Zedekiah or any of those, but I'm going to ask you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Genesis. As a church, we have been walking through the book of John through most of this year, and we're going to take a, a brief break and catch our breath this month before we sprint to finish the book of John in the spring. But uh, over this month, over December, as we together as a church begin to look forward to uh, the birth of our son, as we begin to look forward in terms of Advent uh, and, and to get excited about um, that great event that the Lord has worked and bringing and bringing um, him to earth, I thought it might be helpful to do an overview of the book of the Bible, of the whole Bible. And, and the reason for that is I, I think that God's word is so deep. Um, you could swim in it, you could dive to the, the deepest part that you possibly could, and yet um, you would not reach the bottom. <clears throat> the Word of God is, is deep, and you can, hang on, uh, you can hang on one word, or one part of one word for an eternity. And, and, and I just, I love that fact about God's Word, and you, you who've been under this, the, my preaching for some time, know that I, I just love to get into the, the, the weeds a little bit and get lost in God's Word, and I, I love to, to get underneath it and try to soak, uh, to, to get as much out of it as we possibly can. And yet sometimes the, the danger that comes when we um, take that approach, and that's not a bad approach, but a, a, da- a possible danger, is that we would, is that we would um, lose the forest for the trees, and that we would lose the sense that the Bible is not, not merely a collection of stories and poems and songs and letters, although it is that, it is one big story uh, with many small component parts. And so I thought it might just be helpful for all of us this, this December um, to just take a step back and to go over the basic storyline of the Bible. And um, today we're going to go over the book of Genesis and Job. That's about 90-something chapters, um, and we're not going to go over it word by word, don't worry. Um, but we, we are going to—I'm just— going to try to give you a sense, and obviously there's going to be quite a bit that I, I'm going to leave out as we're walking through Scripture this way, uh, and my hope is that it would really whet your appetite so that when you pick up your Bible to try to read through the whole thing next year, which is a great goal, that you wouldn't just stop in Leviticus, but that you would press on till at least Deuteronomy. Okay, uh, so I'm going to start by reading Genesis three fourteen through uh, 19, and then we'll get into it. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. 
thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face ye shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Father in heaven, we pray that you would plant this word into our hearts, that we would cherish it and revel in it, and that through it we might grow all the more into the image of your Son. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Ayan Hirsi Ali was a um, was born in Somalia, lived in a refugee camp in Kenya, uh, underwent the horrors of uh, female circumcision uh, in Kenya, uh, was indoctrinated into the Muslim Brotherhood, and fled from a forced marriage to go to the Netherlands, after, uh, where she became a member of parliament. After 9-11, she renounced Islam and became a prominent voice among the new atheists. Um, where, where Christopher Hitchens, one of the, one of the, one of the uh, public new atheists who likes to, to uh, argue against the Christian faith, um, called her perhaps one of the most, if not the most, important public intellectual of our time. Uh, I and Hersey Ali seemed like somebody who had it all figured out. And yet she shocked many people a couple weeks ago when she um, announced that she was converting to Christianity. This is what Ali said. The line often attributed to G.K. Chesterton has turned into a prophecy. When men choose not to believe in God, they do not thereafter believe in nothing. They then become capable of believing in anything. In this nihilistic vacuum, the challenge become, before us becomes civilizational. We can't withstand China, Russia, and Iran if we can't explain to our populations why it matters that we do. We can't fight woke ideology if we can't defend the civilization that, is determined to de- that it is determined to destroy. And we can't counter Islamism with purely secular tools. To win the hearts and minds of Muslims here in the West, and I would add of anybody here in the West, to win the hearts and minds of Muslims here in the West, we have to offer them something more than videos on TikTok. The lesson I learned from my years with the Muslim Brotherhood was the power of a unifying story embedded in the foundational texts of Islam to attract, engage, and mobilize the Muslim masses. Unless we offer them something as meaningful, I fear the erosion of our civilization will continue. And fortunately, there is no need to look for some new age concoction of medication and mindfulness. Christianity has it all. Here's a a woman who's seen tragedy and triumph, who's seen suffering and hardship, who, who's at the, the intersection of all these publicly moving forces and who has said, uh, unless we have a story, unless we have a framework, unless there's something that, can, that we can uh, read something and it can help us explain why we're here and wh- what we should be doing, uh, then our civilization, our lives, our, our way of life will erode. And she says, I've tried the stories of Islam. I've tried the stories of secularism. And they are wanting. But there is a story that can give purpose 
and meaning and clarity. And it's the story of Christianity. And maybe you hear that and you think, this woman has an amazing life. How in the world? Uh, she, of course she has an amazing story. And there's a, a personal edge to her, to her testimony as well. And, and yet maybe you think, I, I'm just trying to be faithful. I wake up one day. I go to work. I do my job. I come home. I eat too much. I go to sleep. I drink coffee in the morning. I get up and I do it all again. And yet this, the story that Ali is finding herself in, if, if you are a Christian, is not just her story. It's your story as well. It's the story of the Apostle Paul who, who found himself confronted by the Lord Jesus Christ on the way to persecute Christians. It's the story of Judah, who we'll talk about this morning, who finds himself uh, at the depth of depravity. It's the story of someone like King David, who finds in the midst of his great sinfulness, redemption. It's the story of Jesus Christ. And, and there's nothing more fitting as we could look forward to the, the apex of this story, the, the, the life of our Lord and the season of Advent that we could focus our mind on than this story, the story of the Bible and the story of us all. And, and so what I want to do today is I want to cover four stages in this story, four stages. Uh, I'm going to cover creation and fall. So creation is Genesis 1 through 2, fall is Genesis 3. And then I'm just, pe- I'm just calling the period between Genesis 4 and Genesis 11, the troubles. So we're going to talk about that. And then we're going to talk about the patriarchs, which is uh, Genesis 12 through 50 and Job as the patriarchs. And, and my goal today is to give you uh, the, the broad brushstrokes of this story that we find ourselves in. Uh, and, and I'm going to do that tracing three themes. There's many ways to tell this story. The Bible is deep, and we could spend a long time on any of these. Um, and maybe if the Lord sees fit, we'll be able to go through Genesis at some point. But, but I want to trace three themes in particular throughout our time over the next month. I, I want to trace the, the themes of kingdom and seed and covenant. Kingdom and seed and covenant. And we're going to see how those three themes uh, interweave and trace their way throughout the Bible and are are ultimately fulfilled in Christ over the next six weeks or so. Now, so we start off the the Bible in, in Genesis 1. And God creates the heavens and the earth out of nothing and creates them in six days. And and, and at the apex of his creation, he creates this garden, this garden temple. And in the middle of this temple, he places mankind and he, 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 breathes, into their, uh, he breathes into them and uh, they became living. And this is God's commission uh, to mankind. He says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion, a.k.a. kingdom, over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So God creates all things, and in the middle of creation, he creates mankind in his image, that they're given as, a, as a, a mirror to reflect his glory, much like the moon reflects the light of the sun, so man is created to reflect the image of God Almighty. 
We see that man is given dominion over all things, that man is given a kingdom. In fact, they're placed in the garden and they're told to cultivate that garden, to press that garden out, to extend the rule of God over all things. The man is given not only uh, this kingdom, they're also given the instruction to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. So they're supposed to have offspring and seed that, that would continue to extend the kingdom of God, the reign of God throughout all the cosmos. And God creates them in covenant with himself. Covenant is just the word that we Christians use to describe the, the terms of the relationship between man and God. And God creates man and woman in covenant relationship with him. Uh, He promises them that he will give them all that he has for them if they will give him all of themselves. That if they keep his word and obey him, that the blessings of the Garden of Eden are theirs. And this word is given a a specific instruction, a specific prohibition that they must not transgress says this in Genesis 2, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day you eat of it you shall die. So God places a, a, a sign, if you will, of his covenant in their midst, the, the tree of the garden, and tells them that they can eat of any of the other trees, but they must not eat of that tree. And if they eat of that tree, it will be to violate his covenant. Kingdom, seed, and covenant. And if you know your Bible, you know that it doesn't take long for all three of those to be corrupted. Adam and Eve are in the garden, and Satan, in the form of the serpent, comes and tempts them and leads them into sin. And Adam and Eve, though they're tempted, they choose. Nothing possessed them. They made the decision. They took the, the action. They are responsible for their own deed, and they ate the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And as a result, what we see and what we saw in Genesis 3 is that kingdom, seed, and covenant are all fractured and corrupted. So rather than having dominion over every square inch of creation, the ground will now resist them in their efforts to cultivate. The ground, rather than producing fruit and and a harvest, will now produce thorns and thistles. And the only way to, to extend dominion over it is by the sweat of your face. And even then, they will return to the ground, for out of it they are taken. For they're from the dust, and to the dust they will return. Kingdom is, is broken. The, the, the very possibility of bringing forth offspring, of, of carrying out this mandate that God had given them, uh, that too is corrupted. The Lord says, I will surely multiply, multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. So the very, uh, the, the, the very act of bringing forth children and seed into the, the world is, is corrupted and it's broken and it's painful. Uh, the, the, the seed does not, the, the idea of offspring and seed does not bring, does not, does not escape the fall. And finally, covenant is also broken. Because, God, because mankind broke covenant with God, they are now under judgment. And they're cast out of the garden. And they're no longer to eat of the tree of life. And they will die in their sins. Uh, this, it seems like evil has won. 
It seems like darkness prevails. It seems like Satan gets his way. But the, the good news of Genesis 3, the, I think the good news of the whole book of Genesis and the good news of the whole Bible is that God will not allow Satan to have the last word. God will not allow Satan to have the last word. Uh, God promises that he will bring forth offspring from the woman, and from that offspring he shall bruise and crush the head of Satan. Even though Satan bruises his heel, he will crush the head of the snake and the serpent. The, the, the seed will come, this, and this is called the proto-euangelion, the first proclamation of the gospel that the seed will come. This, this seed will come and he will reverse what went wrong. He, he will reestablish the rule of God in the hands of men over all creation. And this man will establish a new covenant with them. We see the, the promissory nature of this, the, this looking forward idea of, the, of a covenant to come with the Lord in, in verse 20 and 21. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. That Adam knew, even after Genesis 3, that God was going to bring forth life out of death. It says, And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. The first sacrifice was made to cover their sins in a very real way, that rather than them being naked, and out in their sins, that they would be covered. They'd have garment of skin over them, and their shame and their sin would be hidden by the death of an animal. Kingdom, seed, and covenant. But what we see this, these themes continue through, through what I've called the troubles, Genesis 4 through 11. And if you, there's a story of Cain and Abel who are two brothers, and Abel offers a good sacrifice, and Cain doesn't, and Cain is jealous of Abel, and so Cain kills his brother totally get that. And, and, and uh, I got six of them. Uh, and, and so you see there's this jealousy that breaks out between brothers. And, and it's actually super important because after, after Abel dies, uh, Adam and Eve have another son named Seth. And so from Seth and from Cain come the two lines, the sons of God and the sons of men. And yet, Yet what we see is that, uh, that, that, that those two parallel lines are, are, are begin to be corrupted as the, the daughters of God go out to the children of men, to the sons of men, and vice versa. And so there's this, this corruption that happens of, of the line. And, and God sees that evil has spread over the face of the earth, and so he sends a flood to destroy the whole earth. And yet he preserves and saves for them one family, eight souls, Noah and his family who come from the line of Seth. And it seems like God has won. It seems like he's, he's purified the earth. He seems like he has cleaned the, the world. And yet, what do we see except the minute that they get off the ark, Noah is literally lying drunk in a cave. It seems like the fall has penetrated even to this new world. And so uh, mankind exalts themselves in the Tower of Babel. They exalt themselves against God as if to say to God, we don't need your covenant. Kingdom is fractured. The, the whole face of the earth is covered with sin. And even after the ark, we, we see that it doesn't take long for sin to set in again and for the Tower of Babel to rise and so that men can exalt themselves over and against God. 
We see that seed is corrupted. We see that the, the line of Seth, the, the line of the children of God, it seems to be that even that cannot escape the problem of sin. And we see that covenant is broken as men continue to exalt themselves against God and as if to say to God that they do not need him. And yet again, we see that God will not allow Satan to have the last word. That when the face of the, the whole face of the world is covered with evil, God purifies it and he promises that he will continue to do, uh, to do so and he will continue to save his people. We see that God preserves a seed. He preserves a seed through, through Seth and then he preserves a seed again through Noah, a family to uh, which he will bring about redemption and he preserves covenant. Every time in this past, in, in the book of Genesis, but especially after the, the flooding of the earth, we see that God reestablishes covenant with his people. And that God offers a covenant to his people after the death, or after the, after the flood with Noah. Kingdom, seed, and covenant. Well, and then we get into the period of the Bible known as the patriarchs. And, and that covers roughly Genesis 12 all the way through Genesis 50. It also contains the book of Job, although we won't spend as much time on the book of Job this morning. Uh, we, we see in there that the, there's this man named Abraham who's dwelling in the t- uh, shadow of the Tower of Babel. He's dwelling right close to it in Ur. And God calls Abraham and says, I'm going to give you a promise, get out of town. So God goes with Abra- Abraham goes with God and he goes and goes to the land of Canaan. And God promises that he's going to give him this land. He promises he's going to give him an heir. Even though he's 75, God promises that he's going to give him a seed. And he, he establishes a covenant with them, kingdom seed and covenant. In particular, we see in the story of Abraham, even though he breaks covenant, extraordinarily quickly with God. Um, God promises him in Genesis 15, he's going to give him the promises of the covenant anyways. And the question is, why, why, would, why would God give him the promises of the covenant? Why, why, how could God give a sinner like Abraham these glorious promises? How could he do this for him? And God tells Abraham that he's to come out and look up at the stars. And he looks up at the star. He says, so shall your descendants be. As many descendants, as many as there are stars in the sky and as many as there are grains of sand on the seashore, so I will give you offspring. And Genesis 15, 6 tells us that Abraham believed God and so it was credited to him as righteousness. Well, God keeps his word. He provides an offspring for for Abraham. He provides uh, Isaac for Abraham. He keeps his word. Now, you have to understand what's going on here because God has promised that there's going to come an offspring from, uh, from Eve and eventually from Seth and all the way down through Noah and then from Abraham who's going to crush the head of the serpent, who's going to defeat sin and Satan and the devil. This is part of the storyline of Abraham. And you have to keep that in mind when God tells Abraham in Genesis 22, go up on Mount Moriah and sacrifice your son. Abraham knows exactly what he's saying. Abraham knows that Isaac, who's going to be the new covenant head, who's going to be the one through whom the promises will come to the people of God, uh, God, Isaac, uh, God Abraham knows that God is 
uh, is giving Isaac to pass on the covenant, and therefore Isaac must be the one who's going to establish the covenant, who's going to deal with the sin. And so Abraham brings him up on Mount Moriah, on which uh, later Jerusalem will be built, and he brings him up, and he puts him on the, the, the altar, and he has in his hand the knife to sacrifice him for his sins. That's what's happening. Is Isaac supposed to be the substitute for Abraham? That's what's going on here. And right as the knife is in the air, God rejects Isaac as a sacrifice. God will not accept Isaac as a sacrifice for the sins of Abraham. Because it turns out that Isaac, too, is a covenant breaker. And all you got to do is just keep reading the book of Genesis to figure that one out. Isaac is an imperfect sacrifice. Nevertheless, God has used this event to test the faith of Abraham to show that Abraham really does believe him. And God, at the last minute, at the 11th hour, provides a lamb. And Abraham and Isaac sacrifice that lamb to God in the place of Isaac. Well, Isaac, of course, repeats the same mistakes and breaks covenant just like his father does. And Isaac has these two sons, Jacob and Esau, and Esau is a man's man, he's a manly man, and uh, Jacob is kind of a mama's boy. And, and Isaac loves Esau. And Rebekah, his wife, loves, uh, loves Jacob. And, and so through various ways of scheming, God uses Jacob to steal the blessings of, in the birthright from Esau. And then Jacob wants to kill his brother, common theme in the book of Genesis. And Jacob gets the heck out of Dodge. He heads out to, to marry, and eventually he, he meets two sisters, and he, he marries them both, and eventually he comes back to the land of Canaan and is half reconciled to his brother Esau, and he's living in the land, and Jacob has some kids of his own. He has, uh, he has uh, 12 sons, and he, like his mother, has a favorite, Joseph, and so he sends Joseph out to be the foreman of his brothers, and his brothers are not a fan of this. And so they throw him in a pit at first to murder him. Then they figure they might as well make some money. So they sell him into slavery, and Joseph is off to Egypt, and that's, that problem is out of their hair. And famine strikes the, the land of Canaan, and, and the people, uh, the, the children of Abraham, the children of Isaac, the children of Jacob don't know what to do. So they go down to Egypt, where it turns out that Joseph is in charge. And when Joseph discerns that they've been repentant, he, he, uh, he, he reveals himself to them and welcomes them to come down to the land with him. And we see in the story of Joseph this beautiful moment because it's a very dark moment. Because the, the, the brother who, who gives up his sons so that Benjamin can go free is Judah. Judah, the very one who, who himself had had lobbied to sell Joseph into slavery. Judah is, is the one who, who, who himself sacrifices his own sons, as it were, for the, the brother of Joseph. Why, why did Judah have this about face? How did Judah change like that? Well, you see in Genesis 38 that Judah had some sons of his own, and his eldest son was a moron. And so God struck that moron down. And so Judah's brother is supposed to go in and produce offspring for his brother through his brother's wife. It was a common custom, a leveret marriage of that day. And he also was a moron. So God struck him down. 
And Judah is afraid that if he sends in his third son, that this is a black widow and that she's going to, because of her, that all of his kids could be cursed. It's not his fault. It's not his kid's fault. It's her fault. And so he sends Tamar, his daughter-in-law, back to, back to her father's house. And Tamar sees that she is being spurned. She, she understands what's happening. So Tamar dresses up as a prostitute. And true story, it's in the Bible. I didn't make this up. It's in the book of Genesis. And, and Tamar comes and dresses up like a prostitute and seduces Judah. And through Judah, she produces offspring for Judah's son. And when Judah figures out what's happened, he says, she is more righteous than I. And Judah hits his low point. That's, that's the turnaround for the character of Judah when he realizes that he is a sinner. And I suspect that's part of the reason that God gives him the blessing that the scepter shall never depart from his family. As if to say, God says, I can work with even a fool like this. Kingdom, seed, and covenant. The land of Canaan is promised to the children of Israel. And yet at the end of the story, they do not have it. God provides again and again heirs for Abraham, even though it seems like the, the bareness and the brokenness of this world will, will not allow children to come forth for this family. God brings forth children. In covenant, every time these fools break covenant, God in his mercy and God in his kindness reiterates his covenant. He will not break his word, and Satan will not have the last word. Of course, in this time, and again, we won't spend as much time on this, one of Esau's descendants comes to rule the the people of Edom, a man named Jobab. Of course, it's through Jobab that uh, that many commentators believe Jobab is Job. That figure in the book of Genesis is, is the same figure that Job uh, it, that portray, is portrayed in the book of Job. And so Job is one of the children of Edom and who himself is a, is a believer. And he lives during this time when God shows his kindness and his faithfulness to Job as well. Kingdom seed and covenant. This is the the story. And so we see here that there's been this pattern throughout the book of Genesis that the people of God um, continue to screw up, and yet God continues to offer covenant. We see that Satan's machinations are continually at work, and yet God will not allow Satan to have the last word. He will not allow death to reign. He will not allow sin to he will not allow sin to finish the story. And so we end the book of Genesis, and we, we end the book of Genesis with the people of God in slavery in the land of Egypt. It seems like they've never been farther away from the kingdom. Their, their children are slaves, and so how in the world are they going to be the ones through whom the covenant blesses the whole world? And yet God has always been faithful to his word. As we'll see next week as we talk about Exodus and, and a couple uh, all the way through the book of Judges, that God is still at work, and he's still working in this family. Let me give you nine applications from this story. I know it's, we've done a huge overview, and I know it's a little bit like opening up your mouth to a fire hose, but let me just help, help this make this extraordinarily practical. The book of Genesis is such, such a helpful book for Christians. And the, the first one is this. first application I could give you is this, that God will not allow sin to have the last word for his people. God will not allow sin to have the last word for his people. 
And so if you are here and you're wrestling with sin and you see the effects of it in your own life and and you feel guilty and you feel, feel frustrated and you feel broken and you don't know how you can ever escape, if you're a Christian, God will not allow that to have the last word. And I know it seems hopeless sometimes to fight against sin. I know it seems like you'll just never be able to eradicate it. And I know it seems like the more that you get rid of, the more that is there. But God will not allow it to have the last word. God is in the business of making all things new. God is in the business of redeeming sinners. God is in the business of working with sinners to accomplish his purposes and his glory. And so do not lose heart. And of course, if you're here this morning and you have never put your faith in Jesus Christ, and you wonder, how, how could God work with me? Could, could that be true for me? I would tell you, if it's true for Judah, I don't know what you've done, but I know what Judah did. It's true for you, that God will not allow sin to have the last word. Number two, you are an image bearer. You are an image bearer. In the eyes of God, you have worth and dignity. When God looks at you, he sees a mirror for his own glory. If you're here this morning, you feel worthless. You feel like you would throw you out if you had a chance. You need to know that God has the chance. And he doesn't because he looks at you and he sees an image bearer. Even after the fall, man is still in his image. Yes, the image of God is, is defaced, but it's not destroyed. It's effaced, but it's not erased. The, the image of God is not obliterated after the fall. And the, the story that we have before us, this, this wonderful story, the gospel story is a story of a God who restores his image bearers to reflect his glory. You are an image bearer. But I'd also tell you this. You need a redeemer. You need, <clears throat> you need a redeemer. If you don't read the book of Genesis and you don't see yourself in the characters of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, then there's a problem because they're all pretty screwed up. And so are we. The only hero in the Bible, the only true hero, is God himself. These people are all deeply flawed. And on the one hand, that should be comforting to you because you should feel a kinship for them because you should feel deeply flawed. And on the other, it should make you run to your Savior and your Creator who alone can give you the salvation and the redemption that you need. You need a redeemer. You need the seed of woman to come and crush the serpent's head because you cannot crush it yourself. And mercifully, mercifully, this is what we're promised, is that God did bring forth uh, the seed of the woman, that God did bring forth a redeemer, that God did bring forth someone to stomp on Satan for you. And that person is Jesus, who we will talk about that God is, is in the business of redeeming those who, who need him. Which means, number four, what God wants from us, I don't know if I'd say above all, but maybe first of all, 
is a broken and a contrite heart. That's what God wants for us. God wants for us to get like Judah to the place where we say, they are more righteous than I. God wants us to come to a place where we recognize our own sinfulness, where we stop running from the truth about who we are, where we embrace the fact that, yes, we were created in the image of God, but also, yes, we have broken covenant. Yes, we have wandered far afield. And, And yes, we, too, are deeply flawed. What God wants from us is a broken and a contrite heart. Number five. God works with broken families. God works with broken families. It's one of the the grand themes of the book of Genesis. There's There's no perfect family in the book of Genesis. And yet God works with broken families. So I don't, I don't know all the details of maybe what your, your family was like, but I just want you to know it is not too broken for God to work with. You say, mom was distant. Esau says, I know what that's like. You say, mom and dad played favorites. Jacob says, I know what that's like. You say, my brothers just will not leave me alone. Abel says, I know what that's like. You say, mom, and, mom or dad was a drunk. Noah's kids say, I know what that's like. You say, there's such unspeakable depravity, I can't even name it. Lot's kids know what that's like. The story of the book of Genesis is again and again, God does not work in, in perfect families, but he takes those that are broken He takes prodigals and he brings them home. He is the father to the fatherless and the husband to the widow. God works with broken families. If you're here this morning and you feel hurt and pain and brokenness because of your family upbringing, you need to know that, that God works with people like that. And that your family is not too far gone for the grace of Christ to redeem. And God works with broken families. I'd also say this. One of the lessons that you learn from the book of Genesis is that foolishness has consequences. Foolishness has consequences. If you look at the story of Jacob, imagine meeting Jacob as a young man who's a thief and, dis, and, a, and a liar and manipulative. And you think, if you don't change, imagine what you'd become. And you fast forward in Jacob's life 20, 30 years, and you see that he's cowardly. He has this weird codependent relationship with his son. He doesn't deal with problems. You see that he is not the man that he could have been. See that many of the troubles that come upon his own head are are the result of his own foolish decision-making. If you look at the story of Abraham and you look at, maybe you know in Genesis 14 how Abraham goes and he he saves his nephew Lot and he looks really noble for that. 
until you realize that the reason that Lot is brought into captivity in the first place is, is the result of a chain of events that started with Abraham's foolishness, calling his wife his sister. Foolishness has consequences in the book of Genesis. Yes, it, it's a story of how God redeems and provides redemption. But it's, it's also the story of how foolishness takes its toll. And foolishness yields a result. And foolishness does not stop. But if, if that's the truth, if there is this, this, if, if there is this clear, evident foolishness has consequences, it's also equally true that God is with the foolish sometimes despite themselves. If you look at the promise that's told to Jacob again and again and again and again, it's God saying, I go with you. I'll go with you, Jacob. I'll go with you to your uncle. I'll go with you back to the land of Canaan. I'll go with you. I'll be with you. I'll go with you down to, uh, to Egypt. And when your children are ready, when your descendants are ready to come out of Egypt and come to take the promised land, I'll go with them then. The, the promise of the book of, of, of Genesis is that for those who are his, even those who are his who are foolish, that God does not break covenant and he does not abandon them forever. God, yes, foolishness has consequences. Yes, foolish decisions lead to problems in life. It's true. God's promise is that that doesn't mean that he doesn't go with his people. And so if you look at your life and you just see one endless mistake after another, and you can draw the line to something stupid you did when you were 15, and you can see how what you have 70 years later is a result of all of that, it doesn't mean that God has abandoned you. It doesn't mean that God has dismissed you. But God goes with the foolish sometimes despite their foolishness. To which I would also add this, whatever, I think number eight. There is no substitute for holiness. There is no substitute for holiness. If you look at the story of of Joseph. Joseph, of course, is brought into slavery, and he's, he's, he shows himself to be trustworthy, and he is elevated to the pinnacle of what a slave could achieve as Potiphar's uh, kind of right-hand man, only for, only for his, Potiphar's wife to try to seduce uh, Joseph. And yet Joseph bucks the trend of the rest of his family, and holds on to his integrity. And it seems like things get worse for Joseph as a result of that. And sometimes in our lives, it seems like things get worse as a result of godliness. Yet we see that God is faithful to bless Joseph again and again, even in the midst of that. And God blesses holiness, if in no other way than showing them, uh, those who are holy, more of himself. And so if you're here this morning, you're trying to live a holy life and you just feel like every time you try to make a decision that pleases the Lord, things just get worse. You need to know that there is a holiness without which we will not see the Lord. 
and to not give up on trying to live a life that is pleasing to the Lord, even though sometimes it seems difficult. Because in the long run, at the end of the story, you will not wish you lived a less holy life. And finally, if we could close with this application. God gives hope to the hopeless. God gives hope to the hopeless. In the book of Job, you see that that Job seems like he's lost everything. Job seems like he has nothing left. He seems like his, his, his wife has abandoned him. His kids are dead. He's lost all his wealth. His friends are not really friends. It seems like he has nothing left to live for, and yet God gives him hope. It's one of the great themes of the book of Job is that Job actually grows in his hope from beginning to end. And he says this stunning statement about halfway through. He says, For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at last he will stand upon the earth, and after my skin has thus been destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another. A Christian's God has hope for the hopeless. And if you're here this morning, you just feel the, way, the waves of the world are too high. You feel the walls are crashing down too strong. You need to know that there is a hope that can outlast even that. It's the hope of the gospel. It's the hope of the story of which we find ourselves in. Uh, see, the story of, uh, of Ian Hershey Ali has a... a very philosophical edge to it and has a philosophical half to it, but also has a very personal half. See, she was, she was uh, f- floating into desperation in free fall. By her own admission, she had uh, drunk enough alcohol at one point to sanitize a hospital room. She was getting the, the best therapist money could buy. And it didn't seem like her hope was, didn't seem like she was really it was doing any good for her. All these things that she had, she achieved so much, and yet she felt so empty until one brave person said to her, one brave person said to her, it seems like you're spiritually bankrupt. And slowly began to sh- share the gospel with her and slowly began to tell the truth of the gospel and slowly began to introduce her to Christianity until she could see that there is indeed hope to be found in this story. And it's the hope that you can have in the person of Christ. Father in heaven, we thank you that you give hope to the hopeless. We thank you that this story does not end with Satan having the last word. We thank you that you call those who are near and those who are far. We thank you that you give light to those in darkness and hope to those in hopelessness and faith to those who doubt. God, we thank you that you are with those who don't deserve it. We thank you that you do not allow sin and darkness to have the last word. And so, Father, I pray now that as we ourselves live into this story, 
that you would help us to see more and more the way it plays out in our lives, and that you would help us to live with the grain of redemption instead of against it. It's in the name of your Son that we pray. Amen.